Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, welcome to a new episode of Talking France, our penultimate episode, in fact, before we take a summer break. If you stay with us for the next 30 minutes or so, we'll update you on some of the big talking points in France, such as whether the country is facing another nationwide outbreak of rioting as anger grows after French police shot and killed a 17-year-old boy during a traffic stop. We'll also explain how a controversial choice of chief editor at a Sunday newspaper has caused uproar and try to explain Emmanuel Macron's new and rather peculiar, even outdated, drugs policy. Plus, will the ongoing drought and subsequent water restrictions in place across much of the country affect your summer holiday in France this year? We'll explain what you need to know if you're heading on holiday over the next few weeks. We'll also try to explain France's complicated alcohol rules that means there will be no beer or champagne available in Paris Olympics venues, unless you're in the posh seats, of course. And we'll also reveal where the best places in France are. Well, at least according to those organising the route for the Olympics torch. I'm Ben McPartlin, your host, and by my side as ever will be editor Emma Pearson and journalist Jen Mansfield and joining us as usual from his bastion up in Normandy will be our politics and basically all-round expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, thanks for turning up again. Good to have you with us. We should start of course with the rioting. Emma, Bring us up to date on what's going on in France at the moment. Well, several of the suburbs just outside Paris were rocked by rioting on Tuesday night after the death of a 17-year-old boy who was shot by police after reportedly refusing to stop for a traffic check in Nanterre, which is just to the west of Paris. The trouble began on Tuesday afternoon in Nanterre and it quickly spread to several of the neighbouring suburbs, including Clichy-sur-Bois and Mantes-la-Jolie. There were cars set alight, there were fireworks fired at the cops, there were street furniture set alight and there were clashes between police and locals. The Paris police chief said that in total 42 vehicles had been burned on Tuesday night and more than 30 people were arrested. Yeah, now look, the important thing is there's a video circulating of this traffic stop. It's pretty shocking stuff. The officer appears to shoot the the driver at point blank range through the window. He's been he was pointing his gun at him. Even Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin, normally a staunch defender of the police, has described the footage as extremely shocking, and it does not conform to the laws of the Republic, Emma. Yeah, I mean, what's really added fuel to the fire is that the police appear to have lied about what happened. That their first response to this shooting talked about an officer being in danger and having to fire at a vehicle that had refused to stop. Then this video that you're talking about. Surfaced. It was a mobile phone video shot by a member of the public and it showed that the car was actually stationary while the officer was pointing his gun through the window. He's heard to shout, I'll put a bullet in your head. The car starts to move and then he fired. And that's kind of what's, you know, really added fuel to this fire. The Green Party leader, Marine Tondiel, she responded to say, what I see in this video is the execution by police of a 17-year-old kid in France in 2023 in broad daylight. And she also added that before the video was published, I heard a policeman lie, I heard his colleague lie, the prosecutor lie and the media lie, she said, adding that you get the feeling our police is becoming like America's. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has also responded to this. He says that the teen shooting by police is inexplicable and unforgivable. Indeed, it's caused a huge amount of anger and shock, understandably, uh, if you've seen the video. 
Uh, another thing that's also added fuel to the fire, Emma, is that this is not the first time there's been a, a deadly shooting after a routine, apparently routine, traffic stop. Yes, absolutely. In uh, in 2022, 13 people were killed after reportedly failing to stop for police road checks. In total, five officers have been charged over these deaths. And we should say that the police officer in this case, he's been charged with involuntary homicide. Now, police say that this is because there's more dangerous driver behaviour, that there's more violence during traffic stops. But campaigners are pointing to a 2017 change in the law on how police are allowed to use their weapons during traffic stops. They say there's been a rise in the number of deaths at traffic stops since then. And outside of traffic stops, there's also a wider pattern of people dying at the hands of the police, especially young men of colour. And there's also a history of these deaths leading to rioting, uh, particularly in the more deprived areas of French cities. I think the most famous example of this is 2005, when the country saw nationwide rioting for almost a week uh, after two teenage boys died after being chased by police in one of the Paris suburbs. But there have been lots of other examples since then. Yeah, thanks, Emma. This is a good time to bring in John, our politics expert from Normandy. I asked John whether we could be in store for a repeat of those 2005 nationwide riots. Well, there are um, worrying parallels, if you like, with 2005. On that occasion, two young boys, about the same age, but younger than the one that was killed on, on Tuesday morning, died after they were chased into an electricity substation by the police. And then the police lied about it and said they weren't aware they were there. But the difference, I think, on this occasion is on that occasion, the police lie uh, was pursued by the then interior minister by the name of Nicolas Sarkozy, who said that the boys were criminals, which they weren't. There was a lot of disinformation put about the police. There was no attempt, really, initially anyway, to calm the anger, which then spread, as you say, all around the country to pretty well every medium or large town in France and went on for three weeks overall. On this occasion, although the incident is more directly police involved, you know, policemen actually shot this boy at point range and doesn't seem to have been any justification for it. The government, as it seems, at least said, this is shocking video that's emerged showing what happened. Nothing appears to justify what the policemen did. There will be a proper investigation. So they do seem to have learned the lessons. They, at least the government, seems to have learned the lessons from 2005. If it begins to spread through other suburban towns, then the things could easily spiral. And often when they spiral, they have nothing much to do with the incident which began it. You know, they become a sort of dynamic of their own. And each suburban area feels it has to do its own thing so as to compete with other areas. And there are obviously local grievances which come into play as well. So, yes, it could be serious. But as you say, there have been similar incidents before which have led to sort of some local violence and spread a little bit and then spluttered out. I think it's interesting that this boy who was killed was born, I think, the year after the 2005 riots. And I think it's true to say the whole new generation has now grown up in in the multiracial banlieue or suburbs around French cities who have exactly the same frustrations and angers, faults on both sides, obviously on all sides, as the ones did in 2005. And therefore, maybe, unfortunately, a level of anger and tension that has built up again over those years, which is going to explode over the next few days. John, are there serious questions to be asked about the rules of how French police are allowed to use their arm, their weapon, in situations like this? Well, you know, some ways of looking at that. In 2017, the rules which were changed nominally to make it clearer, supposedly, for when police can use their weapon and when a motorist refuses to stop uh, after being ordered to do so by the police. That in, uh, followed an incident in which two policemen were very seriously burned after being attacked by a car. So, in fact, though, the, the rules haven't changed that much. The police are not allowed to use their weapons unless there is a clear threat to themselves or someone else. So the rules have not changed a great deal. Some people suggest that what 
what has changed is the number of incidents in which French motorists refuse to obey the police. Those have spiralled out of all recognition in those same years. And so the number of incidents in which the police actually use guns in that circ- those circumstances are proportionally much more than the actual number of incidents in which motorists refuse to stop. And that's explained apparently in various ways, obviously cracking down on drugs and that kind of thing. But also just generally that motorists are less likely to, less willing to obey police orders because the rules are now being cracked down on and drunk driving. Because also there seems to be a huge epidemic of French drivers without insurance papers, and therefore there are a lot more drivers out there who have something to fear if they're stopped and proved to have no right to be driving, as this boy doesn't seem to have had. He had no driving license at 17. You're not supposed to be able to drive in France unless you're with an adult. So that isn't a reason to shoot him at short close range, obviously. So it's difficult to, to know, but there just seems to be a problem with some individuals in the French police who, yes, are trigger happy, who do have maybe racial attitudes. I think it's wrong to suggest that all police are that way, but you know, I've written about it before. There, there is a kind of endemic problem in the French police, which successive governments have failed, I think, to, to solve. Right, moving on now, Emma. This week, President Emmanuel Macron announced some changes to France's laws on cannabis. Just tell us what he had to say. What's this change? Yeah, I mean, I really wouldn't get too excited about this. This change is very minor and it's simply introducing the option for on-the-spot payment of fines issued for consuming cannabis. It means that you can pay the officer in cash or by card, as you already can with certain types of traffic offence, and that means that your interaction with the criminal justice system is over. It doesn't change uh, France's actual laws on cannabis, which remain among the strictest in Europe. And in fact, since 2020, 350,000 fines have been issued to people for consuming consuming cannabis, but apparently only 35% of people actually paid them, uh, which is why this... Mm, um, this they just want spot, their money. Yeah, pretty much, yes. So what does the law say on cannabis in France at the moment? Well, basically, it remains entirely illegal to consume or possess cannabis, as well as to grow it or to sell it. There is no distinction in law between possession for personal use or possession for supply, and fines for consumption of it vary from €100 to €450, and that just depends on the discretion of the officer who stops you. There is no legal route for consumption of it for recreational purposes, and most medical uses of it are also banned, although there is an ongoing trial into medical cannabis, which is kind of allowing it in certain areas. There's also So um, CBD products, uh, which contain cannabis without the active ingredient THC, which is basically the thing that makes you high, those are legal. And there are quite a lot of shops selling those kind of products, but the rules on the sale of those seem to change pretty regularly. So it's quite hard for those shops to have any kind of certainty of what they can or cannot sell. Okay, so look, France has some of the strictest laws in Europe on cannabis, but look, I see a lot of people smoking it and I smell it wafting through the streets of Paris, along with the smell of baked bread and blocked drains, Emma. Yeah, exactly. Despite these strict laws, France has the highest consumption of cannabis in Europe. I thought so. Yeah, there's a lot. There's um, there's an estimated 5 million annual users wow. and apparently 900,000 people smoke it every day. In 2016, 41% of French people aged 15 to 64 said they'd used the drug at least once compared to the European average of just 18%. And it's not like this is a hidden thing. Like you say, you see it all the time. People smoke it in parks, walking down the streets, in public places. Yeah. One thing I notice is it's also very commonly represented on screen. You'll often see characters in French TV series or films smoking cannabis, but it's not like a a plot point. It's just a thing that characters do, like having a glass of wine. And, you know, the the public polling reveals that around 80% of people support some kind of relaxation of the law, the most popular option being the sort of legal and regulated sale of the drug for recreational purposes. Okay, look, last question. A couple of years ago, a survey of nearly 40 mayors around the Paris region revealed that around half were actually in favour of legalising cannabis use for recreational purposes. Is it likely? Could it happen? 
So Emmanuel Macron has said several times that it won't happen while he's in office. So that takes us up to 2027, barring unforeseen events, obviously. But a lot of his opponents on the right are also adamantly opposed to it. Interestingly, the biggest police unions are also strongly against it. In some of the countries that have relaxed their cannabis laws, it's actually police who push for change just because so much of their time is taken up with cannabis offences. That is true in France too. Uh, A 2021 cross-party parliamentary report found that between 2012 and 2016, 500 168 million euro from the police budget was spent on fighting cannabis trafficking and cannabis use. But despite this, two of the biggest police unions responded to that survey by strongly condemning the idea of cannabis legislation. So there's not much appetite there either. No, okay. And the Interior Minister, Gerald Damanan, I think he was quoted uh, a couple of years ago saying, you know, we cannot legalise this shit. I think he used the word merde, but ironically in French, they use the word shit to mean... Cannabis, in fact, yeah. or the the English word sheet, but it S H I T. Yeah, but in French it's pronounced sheet. Sheet, eh? yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's the street name for it. If yeah, you, you if you ever want to buy some. Yeah, exactly. Okay, thanks for that update, Emma. Let's move on. Now, one of France's biggest newspapers is in turmoil. Staff at the Journal du Dimanche, or the JDD as it's known, which is France's only standalone Sunday newspaper, have walked out en masse over the controversial appointment of their new editor. That meant the paper didn't appear on the shelves on Sunday and may not do again this coming Sunday. Jen, who is this new editor that's led to this huge dispute? So his name is Geoffroy Lejeune, and basically he's controversial for being the former editor of the far-right magazine Valeur Actuelle. He was actually fired from his position there for apparently being too far to the right. So the staff at the JDD, which is basically regarded as pretty politically neutral, are understandably up in arms. One journalist told AFP that everyone is in shock and stunned. The paper's union of journalists said Lejeune expresses ideas that are opposite of the values that the GDD has carried over the last 75 years. And the people who work for the GDD are not the only ones who are sounding the alarm. France's culture minister, Rima Abdul-Malak, tweeted that, legally speaking, the JDD can become what it wants as long as it respects the law. But for our republic's values, how can you not be alarmed? Mm. Before we bring in John again on this subject to find out whether people in France should be alarmed, tell us more about Le Jeune, Jen. Well, Le Jeune is mainly known, like we said, for having run the far-right weekly Valeurs Actuelles. When he was the head of the magazine, it focused on topics like immigration, crime, concerns around left-wing media bias, quote-unquote woke teachers, quote-unquote anti-white sentiments, and the spread of Islamism. He is 34 years old from the city of Avignon in the south of France. And after studying journalism, he began his career at the center-right magazine Le Point. Then he went on to Valeurs Actuelles and he rose through the ranks and eventually became one of France's youngest editors-in-chief until just recently when I mentioned he was fired. Unsurprisingly, Lejeune endorsed the extreme-right candidate Eric Zemmour during his campaign for the last year's presidential election. Mm, like Zemmour, Jen, Lejeune is no stranger to run-ins with the law regarding accusations of racism, right? Yeah, he's not. <laughs> While he was the head of Valeurs Actuelles in 2021, the publication was found guilty of racist hate speech after it published a fictional story and cartoons uh, depicting one of the country's most prominent black MPs, Daniel Obono, as a nude slave in chains and an iron collar, so quite shocking. And there was another incident in 2019 when hundreds of academics published a joint letter criticizing the publication for having put up a defamatory and, and by many counts, anti-Semitic article about Benjamin Stora, who's a historian of 
French colonial history. Mm, okay, so he's got a pretty clear political agenda, it seems. The question I'm asking, and, and I guess the staff at the JDD want to know, is how did he become the head of the JDD then? Well, it's pretty much because the group the JDD belongs to, the La Gardeur group, uh, was recently bought by Vivendi. Uh, now, it's only been two weeks since the European Commission gave a conditional green light for the acquisition. But Vivendi is a media conglomerate that is controlled by the French billionaire Vincent Bolloré. We've talked about him on this podcast before. Basically, he's known for being quite conservative himself. He also owns the channel C News, which some people kind of liken to uh, the French equivalent of Fox News in the U.S. Uh, people have speculated that Bolloré might be wanting to push the JDD, which, like we said, it's known for being middle of the road, fairly neutral newspaper. Sometimes uh, it operates a bit as a spokesperson for the French government of the moment, posting long interviews with politicians and whatnot, pushing that further to the right. Now, this is really just speculation. Um, Arnaud Lagardère, who runs the Lagardère Group, was the one who appointed Geoffroy Lejeune uh, as the editor-in-chief. He told JDD staff on Tuesday that the decision was, quote-unquote, economic and not at all ideological. And he has insisted that he made the decision alone. He said neither Vincent Bolloré nor anyone else from Vivendi was involved, but this hasn't really appeared to dissuade the striking JDD workers, maybe in part because he also justified Lejeune's appointment by telling them that he picked him because he's young and he knows the digital landscape before adding that the opportunity had to be seized. Talented journalists, there aren't many of them. He basically told all the journalists at the JDD that there's not many talented journalists around. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah, you can't blame them for continuing their strike, perhaps, if they do. Uh, this is a good time to bring back John, who joined us again on the line from Normandy. I asked John whether the French public and politicians should be as worried about Lejeune's appointment as the staff at the JDD clearly are. Yes, I think so. Uh, uh, partly because it's part of a, a pattern of what um, this presumed uh, mastermind of this, uh, Vincent Bolloré, his group has taken over the, the organisation that owns JDD, also Paris Match. But he has a recent track record of having taken over middle-of-the-road radio stations and turned them into kind of far-right talking shops and uh, propaganda platforms to a large extent. That's that's say News, which was very much in favour of Eric Zemmour's candidacy in the election last year. One radio station out of, out of many is perhaps, you know, or TV uh, channel out of many is one thing, but the Journal de Dimanche has a kind of special place in French media. It is the only Sunday newspaper, national Sunday newspaper, except the Sunday edition of the Parisien. It's the only standalone Sunday newspaper. Mm. And it's a kind of middle of the road, rather plodding, but interesting newspaper, which is sometimes accused of being pro whatever government of the day is. But that is, I think, because it's one of the few French newspapers which is not clearly established as either left or right. It is, I think, fairly, has always been fairly neutral in its political analysis and its political allegiances. And it's, it's widely read because it is the only only Sunday newspaper that's published nationwide, often has very good interviews and is often used as a place for governments and others to, to plant scoops and, and interesting new developments. So for that to become a propaganda magazine for the far right, which is certainly what the magazine previously edited by Geoffrey Lejeune, Vela Actuel, was. And he was actually fired by Vela Actuel for being too right-wing recently. It seems like a sort of provocative appointment, to say the least. I'm not sure that people want to wake up on a Sunday and have far-right propaganda thrust down their throats. If you want that kind of thing, you go and buy it in a, in a magazine like Vela Actuel or tune into many one of the social media platforms which provides it. To try and turn a general newspaper into, she denies he's going to do it, but it's difficult to see why he would appoint this young man who has no other track record in journal, journalism except as a troublemaker and a rabble-rouser for the far right to this job. It's difficult to see why else he would do it. So it's a puzzling one, and I think there are reasons to be concerned, definitely. 
This week, Paris Olympic organisers unveiled the route for the Olympic torch. Already, some of the places on the way, especially the smaller ones, are getting pretty excited about it. Emma, you're interested in this for another reason, right? You got something planned? Yeah, basically, this is, in my opinion, the route for the best ever road trip in France, because what the government or the organisers in conjunction with the government has done is essentially created a list of what they consider to be the best places in France. And there are some really interesting suggestions on there for alternative holiday destinations, and a few of them have gone on my list already. Right, here we are then. What are the best places in France, according to the Paris Olympics torch route organisers? Okay, well, the torch arrives uh, by Intermarseille by boat from Greece, home of the Olympics, obviously, mm-hmm. and then it embarks on an 11-week tour of France uh, with a few stopovers in France overseas territories. So it's going to South America, the Caribbean, the Pacific. But back here in the Hexagon, it's making its way slowly around the country, visiting 56 towns and 100 tourist sites or historic monuments. So it's going to the D-Day beaches in Normandy uh, and the memorial for the World War One Battle of Verdun. Okay. It's going up a mountain. Uh, Which one? The Midi de Bigorre in the Pyrenees. All right. It's going down into a gorge. Which one? The Gorge de Verdun, in the spectacular Gorge de Verdun in the the southeast, good for whitewater rafting and stuff. It's going over a bridge, the very beautiful Milau Viaduct, which is near Montpellier. Mm, Stunning. It's going into a cave. It's going to the Lescaux Caves down in Dordogne, which have amazing prehistoric paintings, cave paintings. Mm -hmm. It's going to two vineyards. Of course it is, uh, yeah. Both vineyards I've already been to, incidentally, so clearly I pick well with my vineyards. Uh, It's going to Saint-Emilion in Bordeaux, and it's going to Chablis in Burgundy. It's going to several museums, including Bordeaux Wine Museum, the Angoulême Comic Book Museum, and the Louvre Lens, which is the sort of Louvre offshoot in northeast France. Okay, is it going to the beach? Surely the beach? Of course, yes, yes. Which one? It's going to the beach at Biarritz, so I don't know whether it's going to surf, because that's what Biarritz is famous for, but it's going to the beach. It's taking in several memorials to French icons, including Joan of Arc, Charles de Gaulle, and the Three Musketeers. It's going to lots and lots of historic sites, but some of them include the Roman Amphitheatre at Avignon, which has definitely gone onto my list, and the Medieval Cité in Carcassonne. And it's having a spa day in Vichy, because I imagine it'll be quite tired after all that travelling. Wow, huge selection. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is just a really short selection of it. There's a very long list, which is on our website. Um, And organisers have tried to kind of include small villages and communes and slightly more out-of-the-way places, as well as the big cities and the more obvious tourist sites. And then, obviously, it finishes its journey in Paris, where it'll be used to light the Olympic cauldron during the opening ceremony in July 2024. Mm, This idea of incorporating the best places in France into a route reminds me me that the Tour de France is going to start this week. Absolutely, yes, starts on Saturday. Uh, it has a Spanish start this year, in fact. Mm. It's in Bilbao on Saturday, and then it crosses into France, goes through the Pyrenees, then it goes across the country to Auvergne and the Massif Central, and then into the Alps. So basically all of the biggest mountains in France, plus the dormant volcano that is Puy de Dôme in, uh, in Auvergne. There are 17 French towns that are hosting a départ for the race stages, and these usually make it into a bit of a festival. It's quite fun as well as well, actually watching the race start. There's usually lots of other events and there's big screens so you can watch the day's racing. It finishes up in Paris as usual on the Champs-Élysées on July 23rd and also on July 23rd the women's tour starts. That starts in Clermont-Ferrand in central France which is in the Auvergne region which I really recommend for a visit actually. It's a nice little town and Auvergne itself is stunning. All of these weird dormant volcanoes, beautiful. Mm. It's hard for us to watch the Tour de France. I always intend to but it's on on like an afternoon most days when we're obviously at work but if you do get a chance to watch it on French television it really does show off how incredibly beautiful France is on each stage. Have you ever seen it, guys? No, I don't think I have. Uh, I went to a Depa stage once, but I've never seen it on the telly. No. Have you seen the Netflix documentary out about it? Uh, no. no. If you want to understand how cycling works, how a Tour de France works, like the strategies of it, the teams, the intensity, it is quite a good watch. I've kind of realised 
you know, I've never really understood the Tour de France and how it works. Like, obviously, get someone wins it, but it helps me understand actually how the teams work on. I've the Tour never de France. really understood how the teams work. Can you explain this? Oh God. Okay. So you and each team has a captain that they kind of want to win the Tour de France, or some of them, the main teams do, and the riders around him basically help the captain towards that goal. So in a way, they say it's a team sport, but only kind of the captain gets on the podium. And then there's other teams that just want to win the sprint stages, so they're for like sprint cyclists rather than the guys who can really climb the mountains. But the guys who, normally the overall winner of the Tour de France is basically the guys who are really good at climbing the mountain stages because there's so Mm. many of them. But the other team members, they go through all of this incredible hell and yeah. training and flog themselves nearly to death yeah. in order to not win. In order to not win, in order to not even really get on the podium. They just kind of help out the, the captain of their team and that's what they do. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, incredible sacrifice. Oh, no. uh, what? <laughs> oh, no. But it's well worth a watch. It starts on Saturday if anybody is interested. You might even catch it as you uh, travel around France in your summer holiday this year. And talking of summer holidays, Jen, there are droughts in France in certain parts. There's water restrictions in many parts of the country. Is this going to impact my summer holiday? This is a question readers are asking. Well, it's possible. Experts do think that several parts of France could experience droughts this summer, particularly because the water levels are below uh, seasonal norms in most of the country, the water levels that are in um, the aquifers. But in practical terms, this is going to depend a bit on what kind of holiday you're hoping to take. So if you're a second homeowner and you're coming to France to spend some time on your property, then the situation might look a little bit different from you than someone who's hoping to spend like two or three weeks as a tourist in France, primarily staying in Airbnbs and hotels. But really everyone, especially second homeowners, will have to think about communal water restrictions. So these are at the local level. Uh, They go from level one to level four, with the fourth level being a a ban on all non-priority water usage. We've got a great map on our website. Um, It shows all the areas that are currently under water restrictions, and we update it frequently so you can keep an eye on that. But property owners will really have to think about keeping their gardens in line um, when it comes to wildfire protection protocols, uh, so clearing out brush and not allowing greener to build up. And then as for everyone else, including those who own property in France, obviously, you'll want to keep an eye on the website Météo France. Uh, This isn't just for weather forecasts. Um, In June, the French government added a page that shows the daily risk of wildfires across the country too. Uh, So you'll be able to see if the area that you want to visit is in the green, which means low risk. And what about activities, Jen? What if I want to go swimming in a lake, for example? Yeah, good question. Yeah, good question. So last summer, we did see many of France's lakes drop down um, in their normal water levels. For example, the Gorge du Verdun, which uh, we were just talking about, beautiful canyon in southeastern France, very popular place for water sports like kayaking, canoeing, whitewater rafting. The water that feeds the gorge also feeds nearby lakes that EDF, which is the country's electricity provider, energy provider, uses for hydroelectricity. And so last summer, the drought made it so that some of the weekly water that's released from the dams, which normally maintain the course of the river, were halted. So basically what this ended up doing for vacation people on vacations uh, was that some parts of the river water sports had to be canceled because there simply just was not enough water. Unfortunately, seeing as we are expecting to see drought again this summer, this is possible. So you're going to want to keep an eye on the water levels if you're planning a trip that, you know, involves water sports and whatnot. As for swimming more generally, the freedom to refill private pools is one of the first things that comes up when it comes to drought restrictions, water restrictions. If you own a pool or you want to stay in an Airbnb that has a private pool, then obviously you'll have to keep in mind whether there are communal rules in place at the time of your visit. If you want to go hiking or camping in France, then you'll want to save the websites of the national and regional parks that you're planning to visit. So if there's a risk of wildfires, there's a chance they could close access to hikers. When it comes to wild camping, so like 
you know, along a backpacking route in the park. Sometimes parks will move to restrict this during wildfire season as well. You cannot smoke in French forests. It's now illegal to do so. And in many of them, you can't make a fire either. So some parks and forests, they actually do allow people to bring small, like one person sized gas canisters or little stoves. The camper ones that, you know, would only be good enough to heat up like beans or some water. But generally any kind of open flame is subject to restrictions, especially during the summer months when wildfires are most common. Now, we know some local authorities, private resorts, campsites, etc. are taking their own action, Jen. Yeah, private resorts have also brought in some of their own changes. So, for example, a campsite in Argel-sur-Mer, which is near Perpignan in the south, they've stopped refilling their jacuzzis. They've shut off all outdoor showers near the pool area. Um, you know, their pool actually is still uh, is still available, but, you know, they're making these restrictions in other parts of the, of the camping site. And then some beaches along the Mediterranean have also stopped allowing people to use outdoor showers, you know, in this effort to conserve water as well. If you enjoy golfing, that is one other area that could be impacted. So once the drought level reaches uh, the second level, level two, uh, municipalities restrict the watering of golf courses. Now, typically, this doesn't mean that the golf course is going to close. More so, you're just going to have to swing on some yellow or green grass. But my best advice all around is to just keep an eye on those water restrictions and the risk of wildfire wherever you want to go in France. Before your trip, you should check the websites for the places that you want to visit, especially if you're hoping to do a more nature, outdoor-focused trip. And if you're not sure, then you can always contact the local Marie to ask if there are any restrictions in place. Thanks, Jen. Now, of course, the best place to keep up to date with water restrictions and drought, and of course, you know, the developing story about riots is, of course, the local France's website, thelocal.fr. And anyone who's interested in becoming a member but hasn't quite taken the plunge, you can take advantage of our summer offer on membership at the moment. You can buy an annual subscription for just $24.99 instead of $49.99. Thanks, Jen. The organisers of the Paris Olympics announced this week that alcohol will not be served in any of the Olympic and Paralympic venues next year, citing French laws on the consumption of alcohol in public spaces. But is it really banned at sports ground? What about other public places? Emma, over to you. Yeah, the organisers have said no no booze on sale at any of the venues. The only exception will be for VIPs, who some of whom get free booze with their very expensive tickets, like champagne on arrival. In that case, alcohol isn't technically on sale, but for the rest of us, no booze. And it's caused a bit of head scratching in France because it's actually pretty common to be able to buy alcohol at sports grounds. So the the committee, when they announced this, they cited the Loi Eva of 1991, and that covers the rules on advertising of alcohol in France, as well as consumption in public places. And the law itself seems pretty clear. It says that the sale of alcohol is prohibited in all establishments for physical and sporting activities. But the thing is, there's loads of loopholes to that. So actually, you can watch quite a few sports in France while drinking a beer, wine or some cider. Spirits are usually not allowed. The first of these loopholes concerns the sale, uh, and that's the one that the Olympics are using as their exception for VIP tickets. The second concerns catering. Sports clubs can actually apply for a restaurant licence if they have a catering area and they're selling food. So that could be like a VIP section where they do sort of dinner for people with VIP tickets. But it also seems to cover more casual things like hot dogs and frites, which most sports grounds do sell. And thirdly, local authorities can give up to 10 dispensations per year for sports clubs to sell alcohol. Okay, where can I drink at sporting venues in France then? Straightforward Um, question. Well, it's pretty much anywhere apart from football grounds, really. Uh, Football clubs are by far the most tightly controlled when it comes to alcohol, to the annoyance of club bosses and league bosses who regularly petition to have these rules relaxed. The big professional football clubs are pretty much all dry, as are international European matches. 
At lower league level, things are a bit more flexible, although it seems like that's really just because they're less likely to be inspected, so they might bend the rules a bit, and local police usually aren't that bothered as long as there's no trouble. Usually at the bigger grounds, alcohol's on sale outside the ground, and beer is normally served in fan zones, which will be set up by local authorities whenever there's a big event on, like a league final, World Cup, Euros, that kind of thing. Mm. Also, my friend was telling me that she went to a football tournament at her kid's school and they served wine to the parents, so that's an option for you. You know, the football itself might Mm. not be quite as good as your Paris Saint-Germain, but there is wine there. <laughs> okay, now, yeah, you mentioned there the money factor. I think there was a Senate report that said that football clubs, if they were allowed to sell booze in France, could earn between 30 and 50 million a year. Clearly a lot of money. What about other sports, Emma? Rugby, perhaps? Surely there's booze on sale at rugby. <laughs> of course there's booze on Tell sale at rugby, rugby which is why, as I may have mentioned before, it's the best sport. <laughs> uh, yeah, rugby games pretty much all have alcohol on sale. So if you're coming to the Rugby World Cup later this year, don't worry, there will be booze. In fact, uh, Jacques Rival, who's the chairman of the World Rugby Organisation Committee, said, we cannot imagine a Rugby World Cup without beer in the stadiums. So that's mm. pretty clear. Um, it's not just beer, though. Uh, at La Rochelle, we have oysters and white wine there. They're quite classy down there. Uh, Vin Chaux is also pretty popular. Hot wine in matches in the winter. You can have a hot wine while you're watching. Away from rugby, uh, yeah, there are quite a lot of other sports that uh, that serve it. In tennis, the organisers at Roland Garros, this year they decided to allow alcohol in the stands for the first time. And there were actually a couple of complaints from players at the French Open that the fans were a little bit too uh, convivial well, they were yeah. they were watching their matches. Other sports, it kind of depends a bit on the club and whether they choose to try and get a full-time licence or rely on these temporary exemptions like we talked about. But it's often possible to get a drink if you're watching like basketball or handball or something like that. Uh, okay, so that's sport. Now, where else can I uh, drink in public in France? I'm asking for a friend, of course. Of course. Well, away from football grounds, things are pretty relaxed when it comes to drinking in public in France. Parks, for example, they're all governed by local bylaws, but pretty much all of them allow drinking and it's standard practice to take you know, a well-chilled white or a rosé wine along with your picnic in the summer. Drinking in most public places is okay, although being drunk in public is a criminal offence. And local police do also have the power to ban consumption of alcohol in certain streets or spaces. So if there's a particular area that has problems with public drunkenness, especially in the summer, they'll often put in a temporary decree that's you know, banning drinking there. In other spaces, there are some quite surprising rules because in offices and workplaces, serving alcohol at staff social events is completely banned with the exception of beer, wine and cider, which were alcohol last time I checked. But technically, it would be illegal to have a gin and tonic at your workplace pub or your after-work drinks, but I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone actually check that. Schools, obviously, their workplaces too, and staff have pretty regular pub, again, with wine, beer or cider in the staff room. You know, stressful job teaching. The kids are not allowed to drink, though. Uh, wine stopped being served in school canteens in 1956, uh, to the outrage of some parents, apparently, according to local newspaper Teachers reports well, at the time. Um, and the one thing that foreigners always seem to find pretty hilarious is that you can get beer or wine in the restaurants of motorway service stations. Uh, although we should point out that that's for the passenger, not the driver. Don't Jen, you're nodding, your, you're nodding your head at this, Jen, as though you... Uh... Well, yeah, this is really... So as an American, this is always so shocking to me. Actually, just recently, um, I was out in, in Bretagne in Brittany with my partner and we stopped over at, at a brewery and we picked up a couple beers to take home with us. And, you know, we had these bottles of beer in our hands and I was like, oh, shouldn't we ask for a bag or something to cover up the beer before we get in the car? Because we can't just have, you know, visible alcohol in the back seat, which, you know, you could get in trouble for in the U.S. And my partner was so confused. He was like, well, why, why would that matter? Like, how would they see it? Like, what, like, I don't, he just couldn't comprehend that, like, alcohol couldn't be visible in a car and that there's a rule about that in the U.S. (laughs) So, yeah, there's definitely a different approach here in France. (laughs) Mm, When I got my car broken into, 
I had to report it to the police, obviously. And the only thing that I found was actually stolen was my bottle of 16-year-old Calvados. And I kind of was like hesitating whether to report it to the police. And I, in the end, I did. And he was so sympathetic. He was like, oh, no, 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 c'est pas possible, Calvados. Combien des années? 16 on 16 years old. Oh, no, no, je suis désolé. He was really sympathetic. That wouldn't happen in the US, you're saying, Jen? No, yeah, that definitely wouldn't happen in the US. Oh, I don't know, I guess. But, like, I don't think there would be as sympathetic of a tone. Brilliant. Thanks for clearing up all those rules, Emma. We're off for a, a rosé in the park this afternoon, I think. Totally legal, yeah? Totally legal, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> Right, before we go, as usual, we have some life hacks, some tips for listeners. This week, we're going to stick to the subject of summer holidays and how to save money on your summer holidays. Can I go first, guys? Something that's been worrying me a little bit is the expense of toll roads in France. I kind of just normally just taken motorways wherever I go in France. Now I'm starting to question it because I get these monthly bills, toll the toll or the payage seems to be going up and up added to the fact that fuel's getting expensive Emma should I just avoid motorways and go on the you know the end roads well I would say plan this carefully because don't do what I did which is accidentally set my sat nav to um, avoid toll roads because often the alternative route for toll roads is just like massively longer it takes an extra five hours and so obviously you spend more on fuel than you yeah. would have than you've saved on the road tolls but yeah I mean definitely look at the, the map in advance yeah you don't want to do a five oh, hour no, detour right. around Toulouse I, I did it a once. random example I did it once to get the ferry up in Calais from driving from Paris and I stuck to the end roads and I think I went through every town in northern France, you know, right through the centre of the town. It took me hours and ended up nearly missing the boat. But it, like you say, it is possible if with a bit of planning that perhaps you could um, save some money on payage this summer. And also, if you're going to get petrol, get it at supermarkets, yeah? Definitely the cheapest, yes. Yeah, but as I believe I've said before, again, always make sure you know where you're going. Don't just pull off the yeah, pull off the road. Market. Yes. Um, because the supermarkets, they're always signed off the auto route, but often like you turn Miles off away. where the sign is and then all the signs just disappear and you're just driving round and round in town having an argument with the driver. Yeah, fill up at a supermarket if you get the chance. Anything for you, Emma, Jen? Well, my advice is actually a bit Paris specific. I would say, you know, if you're coming to the City of Light and you want to see all of the lights, a beautiful view, you don't have to go up the Eiffel Tower. I mean, you can, but it's a bit expensive. Uh, you can actually get a really beautiful view of the city for free. So there are several places where you can do that. You can go up to the top of uh, the Ponton department store. And there's also the Belvedere de Belleville, which is a park outside of the Park of Belleville. And there's a beautiful view over the city. And then, of course, there's Sacré-Cœur, when you can just walk up to the top. It's a bit crowded, but it's uh, also a great free view of the city. So there are plenty of uh, different options besides the Eiffel Tower where you can get that view um, for free. You'd also go to your apartment, couldn't you, Jen? You could come You've to my apartment. View. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let listeners know. Uh, Emma? Yeah, my, my tip is look out, for, if you want to uh, enjoy some French restaurants, uh, look out for lunchtime deals because a lot of restaurants have really good deals on for lunchtimes. Even the very expensive Michelin-starred ones have good lunch deals. Uh, Hélène Darroze, for example, she has a 49 euro three-course menu for uh, for lunch at her very fancy place. Only 49 euro? Well, she's Michelin-starred, you know. Right. For, uh, if that's you're cheap, having a Michelin-starred dinner, that's relatively cheap. Uh, most other restaurants will have like a, a three-course lunch menu for sort of between 20 and 30 euro. It's great value for money you get pretty much the same dishes as you do in the evening just cheaper and then in the evenings you can just buy a baguette and have it with some uh, some salad cheese and a glass of wine because that's all you need fair enough thanks for that guys fantastic tips and that brings us to the end of this week's episode we'll be back next week for our final episode in this series before like the rest of france we take a summer break a reminder to listeners that if you're interested in becoming a member of the local so you don't miss out on any stories over the summer you can buy an annual subscription for 24.99 instead of 49 99 at the moment thanks to everybody for listening
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.